We heard earlier today as well from King Charles as he takes the throne in an era of uncertainty for both the UK and the monarchy itself. And part of his speech involved King Charles saying he vows to carry on his mother's lifelong service to a nation that is now in mourning. Well, joining us to talk more about this is former BC Premier and former Canadian High Commissioner to the United Kingdom, Gordon Campbell. Thank you so much for being with us today. Nice to be here, Linda. Thank you. Uh, when you were a high commissioner, how close did you work with the royal family, or, or how, how much of that was part being with the royals or near the royals? How much of a part of a, your job was that? Well, you, you know, as Canada's representative in the United Kingdom, you obviously get to go to things like the garden party and state dinners occasionally, receptions. Uh, I'm, I'm sat on the board of the Commonwealth, so... I got to meet Her Majesty many times, both as Premier, first as Premier, and then as High Commissioner. But I don't want to pretend that we were, you know, I was spending weekends at Balmoral. I wasn't. Uh, But I can tell you that I feel very privileged to have got to know both Her Majesty and King Charles when he was the Prince. Uh, And uh, they were both very interested, interesting people. Her Majesty... uh, I, I can tell you one of the highlights of my time in the United Kingdom when I, was, I got a call when I was High Commissioner and they said, uh, would the High Commissioner be interested in coming and having dinner with Her Majesty at Windsor Castle and staying overnight? Well, of mm-hmm. course, I'm going to say yes, right? So I got to go. It was a phenomenal evening. And I had said to a staff member who had been in London that day, I said, you know, one of the one things that I really would like to have is a real conversation with Her Majesty. I got there to the, the for the dinner, and you look at the table, and there's a table plan, and you look at your name next to a, a seat, and I couldn't find my name. I just I figured they've made a mistake here. I'm supposed to be eating in the kitchen. What's going on? I went to the butler, and I said, could you tell me where I'm, I'm sitting? And he said, well, who are you? Which I didn't think was a suspicious question, but I said, well, I'm Candace High Commissioner. He said, oh, you'll be sitting right beside Her Majesty. So I got to spend... Uh, the whole evening, uh, sitting beside Her Majesty, we had a great conversation about everything. You know, the things that you expect to talk to about at a, at a dinner party, about your, our grandkids, about what was going on in Canada, what was going on in the world. It was just a great conversation I had with her. And when we, when the dinner was over, Her Majesty stood up and said, why don't we all go to the archives? So we went to the archives. She points uh, to me, says, well, look there, right in front of me, are those red gloves that we had for the 2010 Winter Olympic Games, the Canada gold medal hockey jersey, and then she directs me to a table. And on the table are the documents that first identified and named Vancouver, that Point Grey, where I was in MLA, and the letter that Queen Victoria decided that we were going to call the province British Columbia. I looked at her and I said, Your Majesty, this is incredible. And she said, well, it's not that incredible. It's why I have an archivist. And her eyes were sparkling and she was laughing. And it was, it was just a great, great memory for me. And I think it reminds us of what a great person she was. You know, we, we think of her as the queen. We sometimes forget that she's actually a mother and a grandmother. But she's also just a wonder. She was a wonderful, warm-hearted good-humored person as well. It's amazing to hear those stories because others as well, exactly that, talking about her as the mom, as the grandmother, and and we just don't often think about that or we didn't think about that so much. What was that like, though, when you found out you were going to be sitting right beside her for the dinner as far as protocols and and what happens next as far as carrying yourself? Was that stressful? 
<laughs> well, I, I guess it it was it is you're nervous. You know, you want to make sure you don't make any mistakes. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you just a little story. When I was growing up, my grandmother would come and she would always remind us of how important table manners were. And at one at one day, I can't remember when it was, obviously, but I can remember her telling me I picked up a piece of bread and I started to butter it in my hand. And my grandmother said, you know, Gordy, if you're ever having dinner with your with the queen, you're going to not be able to lift that bread up. You have to butter it on your plate. And I can tell you that uh, that story came back to me in spades as I was sitting beside Her Majesty. But Her Majesty spent her time, I think, making people feel comfortable, making them feel welcome. When I came and she received my um, credentials as the high commissioner, you know, my overwhelming feeling after it was that, yes, you're going and there's a protocol to do and it's a serious matter and it's a, a kind of a thrilling matter in lots of ways. But it's also, she's just there to say, you're welcome here. You know, be comfortable here. What's going on in Canada? How's that working? What about this? What about that? We had a great conversation then, too. She tried to make people feel comfortable in spite of her position, of who she was. She tried to remind us that we were all people as well. So, anyways, it was those times for me, she always, whenever I was with her, she had some... uh, great comment to make or a great question. I remember once we were at a reception and it was when Blackberry was having its trouble, right? Mm -hmm. And she said to me, what is it about Blackberry? And we had a little conversation about Blackberry. And she says, you know, the thing that I find, I said, what, Your Majesty? She said, "Uh, I can't understand why my grandkids spend so much time on those phones. Those phones are a real problem, right? (laughs) So we just, you know, typical grandparent stuff. So she was... uh, I always felt she always made me feel comfortable with her, whether it was, you know, doing a tour along the lines of the legislature when she visited us at the Golden Golden Jubilee out at UBC. I remember her out at UBC as well. We had we had as good a time as. as I- oh, your phone cut out a little bit there. Are you still there? I'm still here. Oh, good. (laughs) Sorry, just cut out at at the end there. It's interesting when you say that, too, because she's also obviously is being recognized as somebody who really did give her life to service. And yes, she had many, many privileges along her life, but also gave up a lot for that as well. So it's it's refreshing. It's lovely to hear stories (laughs) where she is so down to earth. Right. She was. Well, I think she was. She is, a, you know, if they have a definition of duty in the dictionary, her picture should be beside it. Duty to the the kingdom, to the Commonwealth, to, you know, people around the world. And I think that's an inspiration to us. You know, it's an example that we can take and we can say, how can we emulate that? What are the things we can do? And even King Charles this, uh, this morning in his discussion, in his speech this morning, point out that he's going to try and follow that example uh, because it's something that it is kind of a beacon of light of what we can do in a world that sometimes is too selfish and sometimes too much about ourselves. How do we give back to others? And I think she did that for sure over the 70 years of her reign. And just one last question about that as well. What do you think the biggest challenge will be for King Charles in that there are already discussions? I mean, there have been discussions before about the the monarchy. Do we need the monarchy? Should we stay with it? Is it time to break free? What do you think that his biggest challenge is going to be uh, being king? Well, I hope that we take this time over the next couple of weeks. I mean, nothing is perfect in the world, but the monarchy is a symbol of stability. It's a symbol of all of the things that we, many of the things that we value in life. 
I think uh, our our parliamentary democracy is something that the rest of the world looks to as as a real um, beacon of light, just as Her Majesty's example was. I think Prince Charles, the, the main thing that I think that the, the King, sorry, King Charles has to do is he has to be himself. And I think we all have to recognize that he's not his mother. He's King Charles. I think he's going to try and do the best he can to serve the people. He's interested in public life. He's interested in what's in the unity of the United Kingdom. He's very interested in the Commonwealth and how all the Commonwealth of Nations can work together to make the world a better place. So I I think he will be able to put his stamp on. But I think if we all say, well, why isn't he like Queen Elizabeth was in the 60th year of her reign? It's because he's not. He's her son. He's 70 years old. He served for 70 years as the prince. And now I think he'll take on the mantle of the monarchy and of being King Charles. And if we give him a chance, I think he'll surprise everyone with what he can do. All right. Uh, Gordon Campbell, thank you so much for joining us here on The Jill Bennett Show. It's been great to have you as a guest. Okay, Jill. Good to talk to you. Take care. Well, there have been reports of a structure fire as well as several explosions reported in the 200 block of Kiefer Street in Vancouver. And Vancouver City Councillor Rebecca Bly just posted about this on social media as well. And she joins us now to talk more about what's happening. Councillor, thank you so much for being here. Yes. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Well, where are you and what can you see? So I was uh, at the intersection there um, and at Maine, Maine and Kiefer um, turning left and was in the middle of the intersection and there were a number of pedestrians on the corners and ready to cross the street and there was just a massive boom, like a massive explosion um, that, uh, that happened just east of Maine on Kiefer. Uh, and wasn't clear where it was coming from, um, and that's what happened. I mean, interestingly, police were already on scene. At least six police vehicles I, I saw, um, as well as one in the intersection that turned their lights on and, and sort of zeroed in on that to block traffic from coming down that street. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what I saw. Wow, that must have been frightening to see that. It, it actually really was. I mean, we hear a lot of bangs coming. I live very close to uh, Chinatown, and, also, you know, there's lots of different noises, but I've never heard something quite so uh, close, I guess, and, and so loud. So, yes, no, certainly feeling quite rattled by what I witnessed, but really hoping, uh, you know, all the pedestrians I could see were okay and, and really hoping that whoever was close to that uh, is also okay. Uh, Vancouver police have put out uh, the information now saying that there were several explosions and that there's also a structure fire. Can you see smoke or do you see any signs of that? So I, uh, at the time, no. And I have also witnessed now some uh, some eyewitness video who are much closer, maybe an aerial view of some sort where there's smoke coming out of the ceiling of, of the building there, which uh, is where the Kiefer rooms are, um, supportive housing units. So potentially we're looking at then another fire of, of, of housing, of very much needed housing in that neighborhood. Regrettably, I think so. Uh, I mean, we'll have to find out when uh, fire chief and police are, are, are able to give more information. But, but for now, it seems early speculation is that's what's happening. And have you seen any other as far as first responders? I would imagine it's quite busy in the neighborhood. Do you mention there were there were already police cars in the neighborhood? Have you seen any uh, fire trucks or ambulances, yes. that kind of thing? Yes, fire trucks were rushing to the scene. That's what I've seen so far. 
All right. Well, Councillor, thank you so much for joining us. I know police are going to be hoping for drivers to to stay away from the area and uh, to get out of the area. But thank you so much for joining us with what you know so far. Absolutely. And that's exactly why I put it on social media to have people stay away from the area and let the police do their work. All right. Councillor Bly, thank you again so much. You bet. Well, as we are winding down these warm days that still feel like summer, we know it's going to be a nice weekend, and that means I'm sure there are a lot of people who are going to be spending some time on patios. So we thought this would be a good topic for a Friday afternoon. We're talking about the change when it comes to the provincial policy on pet dogs when it comes to outdoor dining areas. You may have noticed wherever you're going, if you've gone to patios, that there are more dogs perhaps on on those patios. Well, there was a change to the provincial guidelines. It happened a couple of summers ago, but we were all busy dealing with a lot of other things that were going on. We still wanted to check in, though, and see how the policy change is working and whether or not it's a good idea or a bad idea. So joining us now to talk a little bit more about what's happening at the Wicklow Pub, which is in Vancouver on False Creek, is Patrick Greenfield, who is the owner of the, Wickf- uh, the Wicklow Pub. Patrick, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. I know your pubs is one of the ones where there have been, I've noticed in the times I've been there, more dogs on the patio, and even so much so as you can take your dog up the stairs and to get to the patio. Uh, how has the policy change impacted you? Um, well, there are, we do have more dogs coming around on the patio these days, but it really hasn't affected us too much because prior to this uh, updated regulation, we were allowed to have our dogs on the boardwalk area, which is just outside of the patio. But now that they can be on the patio beside their owners, that's, uh, that certainly helped. Uh, so how long has this policy, the, the update and the change, how long has it actually been in place? I think it actually went into effect in mid-2020. Right. and that's so right, right in the heart of the pandemic, so nobody really noticed it. <laughs> right, because that's what I thought, too. How did we miss this? But I think, yeah, we were all a little bit busy dealing with other things at the time. For sure. Um, have there been any problems as far as uh, owners not being good pet owners or any issues with it? No, we find that everyone's really good about it. And um, um, most dog owners are very responsible. And if their dogs can't handle the situation of being on a patio, they usually don't bring them. So we tend to have very good dogs on our patio. Have you noticed then as well with owners, I know you said before they could kind of be on the side or on the boardwalk, which was also a bit limiting if those tables were taken or or if somebody really wanted their dog close to them. Has it opened it up then to more people kind of being able to come and enjoy the patio? Absolutely. Yeah, we, have, we do see more furry friends out there for sure. And what do you have to do then as a pub, as far as the rules? Do you have to make sure or do you have to apply and say, okay, well, we promise to uh, allow dogs, but to make sure they're nowhere near food prep or anything like that? Yeah, it's just basic common sense things. We did have to provide our plan to the um, health officer. And that basically just outlines the policies and procedures, which include not allowing the dogs to come through the building. They do have to go around the building and come up the the back area and not enter any of the dining area. And then it's just basic things for, you know, if the staff happens to pet a dog, then wash their hands and don't let the dogs eat off of the human plates and dogs aren't allowed to sit on your lap or be at the table, be sitting at the table. So it's really common sense things that most people can handle. Right. I was like, common sense. My guess is, though, you've probably had to tell one or two dog owners to, to put the dog off the chair and that uh, they're not a person. They're part of your family, but not a person. And to maybe stop doing that. 
That's true. Maybe just once or twice, but for the most part, not. Is it helpful then, too, as as people kind of as we're getting back out of the pandemic and more comfortable and, and getting out more that it does kind of and with people, too, I suppose that even got dogs. We know a lot of people got dogs during the pandemic that it helps for you as well and that you can have more customers. Oh, for sure. I mean, as you know, Vancouver is such a dog friendly city and so many people want to take their dogs with them everywhere they go. And and that includes restaurants and pubs. So it's a it's it's a big benefit to be able to have them come and feel comfortable bringing the dogs to the patio. And to be clear, just because the policy, this policy is there, but it's not as though you have to let dogs on, right? Is it still up to the pub owner or restaurant owner, whether or not they, they want this just to, to engage with this policy? Certainly. I mean, I mean, every restaurant can decide if they want to have dogs in their patio or not. They can also decide if they want a certain size of dog or even a breed, I think they can decide. So it's very much up to the restaurant restaurant owner. Right. And and so what your specific policy is, like you said, like you outlined, as long as you follow those basic common sense rules, kind of everyone welcome? Yes, that's right. And um, I mean, obviously, we're mindful of the fact that not everybody's a dog owner. So if people do not want to be around dogs, we, we accommodate that as well and try to have the dogs in one section. And if people want to be seated away from dogs, then that works, too. Right, because there will be people as well that either don't don't want to have dogs around while they're eating or they have allergies or that kind of thing. For sure. So, yeah, we try to try to accommodate everyone as best we can, including the dogs. <laughs> Has that been an issue at all, though, if you've got a whole bunch of dog owners on there and then you have people that don't want to be near them? We haven't run into that problem yet. That is good. Uh, how are things then as far as this summer and things kind of getting back to normal? Uh, this summer's been really good. I mean, once we got through the bad weather of, the, I guess, May and June, and we've had a great summer just through uh, July and August and now a beautiful September, so... Hopefully this keeps on going. All right. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us this update. Again, we thought it would be a fun Friday story, something to talk about on a Friday afternoon. So thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Joe. Hope to see you on the patio. Well, a Toronto woman who relies on an electric wheelchair to get around says she is unable now to attend an accessibility conference. This after she flew to Israel, but found her wheelchair was not in the state it was when she checked it when she got to her destination. Well, joining me to talk about this is Mayan Ziv, who is in Tel Aviv. Mayan, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Hi. Tell us what happened with you. You got on a plane, you were going to an accessibility conference in Israel. What happened when you landed and went to to get your electric wheelchair and get to the conference? So I'm traveling here for an accessibility conference in Israel. And, you know, I've traveled many times before. I know that sometimes things go wrong. Quite often, actually, things go wrong when I'm traveling with my power wheelchair uh, and in this case, they very much went wrong. Uh, when I saw my wheelchair after my 10-and-a-half-hour flight, uh, it was totally mangled. Uh, nobody came and spoke to me. Nobody let me know that something had happened. Uh, I basically had to just go and start filing a baggage claim as if, you know, my wheelchair, my form of independence, uh, was a piece of luggage that had gotten, you know, nicked in the process. And can you describe the wheelchair for people? I know there was a photo of it, but can you describe, because this is a a special type of wheelchair and a very expensive wheelchair as well. Absolutely, yeah. So I've always been a power wheelchair user. It's 
uh, a heavy wheelchair. It's between 300 and 400 pounds. Uh, it's extremely specialized. It's adapted to my needs and my body. It's taken months and months of work to build and design this wheelchair to suit me down to, you know, millimeter details. Uh, and this is the wheelchair that helps me, you know, get around every single day of my life. It also has an, uh, a motor on it that lets me elevate. It has a tilt function. Uh, so this is a really specialized um, device, and it's honestly the most important thing that helps me do anything in my day. Right. And is it the size of the wheelchair or what are the rules then as far as why you can't take the wheelchair onto the flight with you? Yeah, there's a, there's all kinds of things. They say safety issues or, you know, that it's liability. You know, I can take my personalized mobility device on any other mode of transportation. And recently in the U.S., they did pass a Bill of Rights that looks specifically at addressing this major barrier that prevents people with disabilities from flying uh, with their own wheelchairs or other devices. Uh, and, and one of the reasons um, that, you know, this is so devastating is because we know that there are other solutions, but there's just so much negligence here, um, such a lack of um, genuine care is what it feels like to actually address this systemic issue across the entire transportation uh, industry when it comes to airline travel for people with disabilities. Right, because like you said, this this is part. This is what you need to get around, and and you would like transportation to be seamless to do that. How do you, how do you get on the plane then, or, or what is the process like for you when you get to the airport? And I know you took extra measures to to try and protect your wheelchair, but what is the process like then when you get to the airport? What did you have to do to get yourself on the plane and to get the wheelchair checked? So um, I'm not able to walk at all, um, and I go through the process of basically getting a gate tag uh, that lets me take my wheelchair um, all the way to the gate. That's like the longest amount of time I can keep my wheelchair with me. Uh, when I get to the gate, just based on previous really horrendous experiences where I've had total loss damage to previous wheelchairs, I bring bubble wrap with me. I bring tape that says fragile, stickers that say electronic equipment. I basically do everything I possibly can within my own control to protect this most valuable device. Um, This is my form of mobility. It's my independence. It's like my legs. It's like someone asking you to take off your legs uh, and see how you manage when you try to get to the plane. But in any event, I transfer into an aisle chair which is a very narrow wheelchair, not, you know, doesn't really feel secure at all, but I'm able to do it. Um, and that's how I then eventually get to my seat on the plane. And the crew then would take the wheelchair. And do you know where does it go into the, the luggage hold or do you know where it goes then as far as on the plane? I, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a mystery. They say that sometimes there's containers, sometimes there isn't. Um, sometimes they have to lift it. Sometimes there's some form of like a ramp. Um, you know, in general, there's no real um, streamlined, protected, safe way to make sure that my wheelchair is in good shape. And I know that because it's just too many incidences that have happened. Too many other people who are now reaching out and telling me, you know, that this happened to them as well. 
Uh, and if you look at some of the statistics in the U.S., we're looking at roughly 25 to 29 wheelchairs being broken a day by major U.S. airlines. And when you say when you got to your destination and you were reunited with the wheelchair and you say it was mangled, what what was broken? What did it look like? Can you describe it? Sure. Um, so, you know, the frame on my wheelchair, you know, the part where I'm seated um, was basically folded in half. Uh, the backrest was it's made out of steel. Uh so this took a tremendous beating. I have no idea how this happened. Nobody has communicated with me about how this happened. Um, but it is basically not usable. Um, it's not something you can sit on. Um, I would try to kind of bend it back with hammers just to do something. Um, but, you know, even me trying to sit in this chair now causes a lot of pain and numbness. Uh, and it's not it's not good. It's really not good. What happened then when you reached out or when you spoke with Air Canada and told them what happened? Uh, have they done anything to make this better or what has the response been from the airline? Um, well, you know, they Air Canada and all other airlines look at wheelchairs like lost baggage. Uh, and so I got an email from someone in the baggage claim department that First in first interaction is basically an email that says here's three hundred dollars as a e coupon, which to me just adds further kind of fuel to this fire. I'm angry, and not only am I not being seen or heard, uh, you know, this is they're treating it as a minor inconvenience. Of course, I expect my wheelchair to be replaced and all damage to be recovered. Of course, that's the bare minimum. I would expect any airline to do. So that's not really where I see this really being something handled properly. You know, I I expect that we look at these issues systematically. I want change and all people with disabilities deserve change. Right, because and from my my understanding to the wheelchair is it it's worth around $30,000? Yeah, yeah, it's a specialized expensive piece of equipment. Uh you know, it can be anywhere between thirty and fifty thousand dollars sometimes, depending on what you build onto your own chair. Uh, you know, I, I, I just it's and the fact that you know any airline thinks that they could just pay away this cost. It's not even just about the cost of the chair that we need to look at. It's my physical and mental well-being. My own health has been compromised. I traveled here for a business trip. All of my work has now basically been put on pause, you know, and let's not talk about the amount of trauma and anxiety that basically has changed my relationship. This is the second power wheelchair that I have had a total loss damage to. Hmm. How am I supposed to ever expect to be a paying customer and feel like I can travel again? Uh, and like you said, other airlines are taking notice of this or at least trying to make changes and and make it so this doesn't happen again. Um, and you've heard from other people as well. Um, aside from the money also of, of being reimbursed or having the real wheelchair replaced, uh, it sounds like as well what you what you would like to see is a permanent change. So this doesn't happen to you or doesn't happen to anyone else again. That's right. I think that change is overdue. Uh, it's it's not enough to handle each case by case. 
you know, or treat it like luggage. We need to look at the human beings being affected daily by this gross negligence and, quite frankly, by this discrimination uh, and, and deal with it and address these issues once and for all. All right. Well, Mayan, we will continue uh, following up on this to see what happens and if there is a resolution. But thank you so much for joining us and thanks for talking to us about this today. Thank you so much, Jill. Well, I saw this post on social media and I'll read what it says. And there was a whole thread, but it was the first one that really caught my attention. And it says, in August 2019, my former employer, Emily Carr University, hired Gina Adams, an Ojibwe Lakota artist, and that is in quotation marks, as part of a restricted search for Indigenous faculty. Then people started asking questions about her identity, including me. This is my first feature for McLean's. Well, not only is it the first feature, it is the cover story on the magazine for the October issue. I wanted to find out more about this. So freelance journalist Michelle Sisa joins us now to bring us more details. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jill. Well, you have written a, a lengthy story, and it's the cover story in the October issue of McLean's. And I'm so pleased you're able to join us to talk more about this. So many uh, different things going on here. But let's talk a little bit. How did it come about that you wanted to write about the hiring of an instructor at Emily Carr, uh, where you used to work as well? But can you give us a bit of the background? Yeah. Um, so I worked at Emily Carr University in the communications and marketing department. So in a way, I had a front row seat to the situation there. Um, and, you know, at the time that I started thinking about writing this story, there were quite a few other stories about Indigenous identity fraud in the media. Um, so there were stories like Michelle Latimer um, and Amy Wolf at UBC um, and Carrie Barasa, most notably at the University of Saskatchewan. Um, and I, I felt as I re- read them that there was a perspective that was missing about what it was like at these institutions before the stories became so public. Um, and, you know, it's really a challenging situation, I think, for any institutions to deal with. And I wanted to try and provide some clarity and just my own experience of trying to navigate it as someone within one of these institutions. And the the subtext on this under the title is identity fraudsters are passing themselves off as indigenous to land jobs at Canadian universities and they're getting away with it. And this story focuses on one specific hire at Emily Carr. And you talk about how the university had a mandate or, or brought in a mandate to have not only more indigenous students, but also more indigenous teachers. What was it, though, about this one particular teacher that kind of set off alarm bells for you and others as well? Well, so at the time, I think Emily Carr was one of many universities who was trying to increase representation of Indigenous faculty. So um, as I mentioned in the piece, Indigenous people are around 4 or 5% of the Canadian population, but only about 1% of faculty. So um, many universities have tried to do strategic hiring um, to increase the number of Indigenous faculty. And at the time, the, the process really relied on self-identification, which meant people just had to say they were Indigenous. They didn't necessarily have to um, provide proof of community connections or um, something like a status card. And I think now most institutions are realizing that that um, 
that kind of left a space open for people to take advantage of that system who had maybe a personal story that wasn't necessarily based in fact. Um, and I'll say that uh, Gina Adams didn't really raise any alarm bells for me right away, or I think most people at Emily Carr. She has a really compelling personal story, um, and she told it many times. So I think, you know, it felt very true and very authentic. Um, but there was a Twitter thread in the spring of 2021 um, where another person who in the story I refer to as Taylor did notice some things about Gina's story that seemed unusual and did some of that research. And um, like many people at Emily Carr, I saw that Twitter thread and read it and I, you know, I thought the research looked credible and that at the very least it merited, um, you know, some questions and, and maybe some follow up. Right. So, so you that, sorry. that was kind of my entry point, I guess, into the story. When you first saw the, the Twitter thread, and that's what I found so interesting, too, because we've certainly seen other huge stories have started that way with one uh, comment on Twitter that becomes a thread that raises kind of some red flags and people look into it more. So when you first saw that thread, uh, how what was your response when you saw this? Uh, I think it was the, the Twitter account called No More Red Face. And when you started yeah. digging into it, uh, how soon from when you started digging into that, did you start finding out things that raised even more questions? I would say fairly soon after that, there there were more questions. Because at first, you know, the, the thread was quite detailed. Um, and it alleged that Jean Adams' grandfather, who she said was born... Um, in an Ojibwe community, the White Earth Nation, which is in Minnesota, was actually born in Massachusetts, that he had white parents, um, you know, that the details of the story didn't match up. And at the time, my first thought was, you know, if this, if these allegations are untrue, if, if her story is true, then she should be able to explain it. You know, it, it shouldn't be very hard to disprove. She must have some kind of family documentation, a birth certificate, a death certificate, a, a relation at the White Earth Nation who can speak for her family. Um, and so I thought, you know, it, it's going to resolve itself quickly one way or another. She'll be able to produce some kind of information um, in her defense or she'll have to explain these allegations. Um, and I think what what kind of surprised me and, and what I talk about in the story is neither thing really happened. Um, there was no real public explanation offered. There was no explanation to the community at Emily Carr or elsewhere. And she just remained in her position for the next year um, and, and only resigned a few weeks ago, shortly before the story came out. So you were researching this or looking into this while you were still working at the university. Did that make things difficult? You know, I, I didn't pursue it too much when I was there. I did write a letter um, to the university president and vice president just explaining my own position um, and my own concerns because I, you know, I'm a member of the Muskeg Lake Cree Nation. My grandmother went to residential school. Um, this is a part of my family story. And so I, I felt like I had a perspective on it that maybe would be helpful to share just about, you know, my my own understanding as an Indigenous person of where, if questions were raised about my identity, I would have family and, and relations who could speak for me. Um, and also why I thought it was important to address this issue, because, you know, I said this this is really harmful to the Indigenous people at this university. If these, if these allegations are true, I think we need to deal with it. 
Um, and, you know, I felt like those concerns were, were heard but not acted on. And um, while I was there, that, that was challenging. It felt like something that we couldn't really speak about. Um, and, you know, there was no resolution. And over time, it just became very challenging to, to work alongside that doubt, I think. Um, but I didn't really begin my research until after I left because I, I felt like I had a conflict of interest while I was there. I, you know, I, I felt obligated as, as was my role to support the university and to, to protect the reputation of the university. And that, that was really the conflict that um, led me to resign. My guest is Michelle Sisa, a freelance journalist, also the author of a McLean's Magazine article called The Curious Case of Gina Adams, A Pretendian Investigation. And Michelle, just before the break, we were talking about this and when you started asking questions. So while you started looking into this and looking at these questions that were being raised by this Twitter thread, you also mentioned that you talked to people at the university. Did you talk to Gina Adams or get any response from her? No, I didn't. So I reached out to her while I was working on this story. Um, I also reached out to her gallery representation, Akola Greifen. Um, they've issued statements on her behalf before, uh, and she didn't respond to my requests by phone or email. She didn't respond to the fact checker. Um, as far as I know, she hasn't responded to any media requests. And what is her her uh, status now as far as uh, at the university, uh, you you mentioned this or you talk about this in the piece as well, that there has been a, a pretty major update. Yes. So the university um, released a statement uh, on Tuesday evening, so the same day that my piece was published, and they said in the statement that she resigned on August 25th, so about two weeks prior to when the story came out, but um, two weeks after McLean's reached out to Emily Carr with um, a fact-checking request that outlines some of the details in the piece. So I'm not sure what happened internally between, you know, us reaching out to them and her resignation and them releasing the statement. I think that's probably something that people who are at the university will have some questions about, but um, she's no longer an employee and I'm, I'm not really sure what, what she's doing now. Hmm. What does this say to you and to others, uh, kind of the bigger picture? And you mentioned some of the other cases where where people have been, it's been discovered that, that perhaps the background that they claimed to have, the Indigenous background, was not th- their background at all. But what does this say, kind of the bigger picture? I, I guess a couple of things. One, is enough being done to to fact check or to make sure when somebody says that this is their background, that yes, it is. Uh, do people have paperwork or have proof for, uh, to show for that? Uh, and is enough being done to, to make sure that, that this doesn't happen, that people don't kind of uh, just say, this is who I am, and then reap the benefits of that, even if they're not? Yeah, I mean, those are those are complicated questions. And I, I think, you know, I, I am sympathetic to any institution that's trying to navigate this because I think it's really difficult. Um, but, you know, I think that there's, there is an understanding now that self-identification on its own is, is not sufficient. So I think most institutions who are doing hiring are rethinking that process. Um, you know, I have concerns about relying on only forms of identification like status cards um, or membership cards because there are Indigenous people who have really deep connections to their communities who don't have that kind of 
identification. And I think that, you know, that's kind of a superficial way of engaging with Indigenous identity, which is kind of what got us into the situation in the first place. I think there needs to be something that's more nuanced and more grounded, ideally, in Indigenous communities being able to speak for who their members are. Um, because I think the one of the challenges here is that Indigenous identity has been really treated as sort of an individual quality, something that somebody has, you know, like eye color, or like, um, you know, like something that you could prove through a DNA type. And that's not really what Indigenous identity is. It's about being connected to a community. Uh, it's about kinship and relationality. And I think that's what's been missing in some of these hiring processes. Right. Um, it's not that you just check a number of boxes and that's fine, off you go. It's that you have that connection. Yes, exactly. And I think that's also what's been missing in the accountability process. So when Indigenous people have raised questions or concerns about um, those who, you know, who have stories that don't seem to check out, who don't seem to have any relationships in the communities that they've claimed, I think that those concerns need to be heard, especially if they do come from the the community themselves. So, you know, in the in the course of reporting the story, I did speak to people at the White Earth Nation, which is where Gina Adams said her grandfather is from. And they said, you know, like we we don't know anything about her background. Like they it's not for me or for them to say that she has no indigenous ancestry, but she has as far as they could tell no relationships there. And I think that's the key piece. The the community has to be involved in this and it can't be something that's determined by an institution. You know, a university doesn't really have a place in saying who is indigenous or not, but they do have a responsibility for ensuring that their faculty and their leadership are being honest and that, you know, if they're being hired on the basis of being Indigenous, that they're being truthful in that, that they can speak to that. And, and Michelle, we only have about a minute left, but uh, what kind of response are you getting? I know the article has, has just come out and like you said, there has been a statement from uh, Emily Carr, but what kind of response are you getting from from people about this so far? Uh, I've been just really, really thrilled with the response, um, especially from other Indigenous people I've heard from who are working in universities and other public bodies that have really also come into come into contact with these kinds of situations. Um, it's, I'm really grateful to, to hear that they feel seen by this piece and that it's validating their experiences. And I also have heard from a lot of people who are working in universities right now who are trying to understand their the importance of this issue and wrap their heads around it. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that this piece has hopefully given them something to think about and some clarity as, as we all try and move forward on figuring out, you know, this really difficult issue. All right. Well, it is a very interesting article. And thank you so much for joining us to talk more about it. Uh, Michelle Sisa, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much again, Jill. Well, we know big events were canceled, were put on hold, they were postponed during the pandemic, but many are coming back. And this one in particular is back and bigger than ever. Talking about the upcoming RBC Grand Fondo taking place between Vancouver and Whistler. And to talk more about this and what we can expect this weekend is Neil McKinnon, the event founder. Neil, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, so this is a pretty exciting that the Grand Fondo is back. Uh, we're back. We're back to live events after uh, a two-year hiatus. But, um, you know, I have to tell you, there's uh, just a ton of excitement and 
all the stars seem to be aligning for us, and we're looking forward to a very uh, successful day now at the convention center with package pickup and obviously a beautiful ride tomorrow. All right. So how are things going to unfold, or, or what will people expect to see tomorrow? So we start in Stanley Park. Uh, we go in different waves depending on the event that you register, but essentially uh, the first group goes off at 6, and the main peloton, the main bulge of our nearly 7,000 riders will leave Stanley Park at 7 a.m., cross over Lionsgate Bridge, and essentially head up the uh, upper levels to, uh, to the Sea Sky Highway and obviously with the destination of Whistler. All right. And how long does it, obviously everyone would have different levels, but kind of what's, what's the fastest, fastest and what's the kind of the average time it takes people to do that? Well, we have a, a professional group of young racers that, that started the, the head of the pack. And if you can believe this, they will ride from Stanley Park to Whistler Village in three hours, under three hours and 15 minutes. Ooh, that's almost driving speed. <laughs> well, to put in perspective, for me to be at the start line, uh, I have to fly in a helijet up to the finish line to get there in advance of the riders. <laughs> and even then, you'll you'll just get there uh, ahead of the riders. Just get there. <laughs> exactly. But we do, uh, you know, it, it, three hours and 15 minutes is the fastest, but we have people that come in in nine hours. So there, there's quite a range. How did the event start? Well, in 2010, essentially as a legacy of the, uh, the Winter Olympics, uh, we, I had this crazy idea to start this event and, uh, and, and uh, create the opportunity to be it's a, a European classic. Obviously, cycling really is uh, the popular sport in Europe and uh, wanted to bring that, that style of event for amateur riders and racers to go uh, to experience something of quite epic proportions. So it was really spawned from uh, European classic Grand Fondo events there. And do you remember when it first started, how many people participated? You know, this event, we've been very lucky. It's been successful right from the get-go. So to put it into perspective, the first year we did the event, we had 4,000 riders the first year. This year now, in 2013, uh, sorry, 2023, We'll have nearly 7,000 riders uh, uh, going up Cedar Sky Highway. Do you mean 2022? 2022, pardon me, 2022, <laughs> yes. I'm getting ahead of myself here. That's okay. I'm sure there will be 7,000 riders in 2023 as well. I just want to make sure we are talking about tomorrow, not a year from yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, right. Pardon me, you're, you're keeping me on track. It's been a long day. I can imagine. Uh, but yes, uh, we are tomorrow morning, uh, Saturday, September 10th, yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, you mentioned amateur riders uh, as well. Are there people that will do this maybe that have never ridden from Vancouver to Whistler or are kind of new at it? Or is it more people who are avid cyclists, more than recreational cyclists that are taking part? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, it's timely, too, because uh, during COVID, there was a, an incredible surge in just people getting out and cycling. And we're seeing the benefits of that right now because, obviously, our numbers, this will be the biggest event we've ever done after a two-year hiatus. But we have, uh, I would say, your average rider is going to come in around five hours, and it, it's not necessarily an elite event. It's, it's, it's an event for everybody. We've got ages from 14 to 84. So we, we cover the whole gambit of uh, recreational riders. 
All right. And what about safety on the streets as far as the streets aren't closed for this? So it is kind of sharing. How do you address that? Well, actually, uh, we create a dedicated lane from start to finish for the riders only. So you can imagine uh, See the Sky Highway. Uh, we drop, uh, starting tonight, our, our partners at Miller Capilano will drop 10,000 pylons on See the Sky Highway and separate the uh, riders from the from car traffic. All right, so it'll be a little it'll be a busy one tomorrow for anybody that's also driving up the Sea to Sky. It's a very very busy day, but uh, you know people can plan accordingly, uh, and uh, and it is still accessible to drive from Vancouver to Whistler tomorrow. All right. Just keep in mind that the event will be going on. So if it starts at seven, then uh, then although you did say some people take a bit longer, is that lane of the road then closed throughout the day? It it is. Uh, However, uh, drivers can go to September10.ca. So September10.ca. And that will give all traffic implications, updates and alternative routes. uh, And as I said, impacts. All right. So that's good to know for uh, people that are going to be on the road. Uh, When we talk about the participants as well, I understand that there are a lot of people that actually come from other countries and other places to take part in this. We have nearly 45 countries represented and we have about 30 percent, sorry, 35 percent of our ridership comes from outside of British Columbia. And so really a destination type event. A hundred percent. We've got people from uh, Italy, of course, all across America, a large contingent from Mexico this year, uh, you know, with, with the pent-up demand in, in travel and destination travel for sporting events is very popular. This is uh, pretty much a, a bucket list and we make it very easy for people to come and, and join us. Um, so it's, it's, it's a colorful, exciting time to be around a very international crowd. All right. And for people that want to watch or that are interested, are there places along the route that people, as far as spectators, can take it all in? Yeah, there's some great spots. Uh, Certainly along Taylor Way is a great spot because you want to find hills where people slow down. You'll get the the benefit of seeing anybody you might know in the event on that area. Uh, Some of the overpasses uh, throughout... uh, Throughout uh, the corridor are usually uh, well stocked with uh, spectators. And, of course, we have a a huge cheer zone in Squamish uh, where the riders will come through and uh, they'll just hear a cacophony of people screaming, yelling. And at the finish line, of course, we uh, we have 5,000 cowbells that we provide people to to make to make their, uh, their their presence known. All right, that is going to be a loud, a loud welcoming of the cyclists into the area for sure. Um, Neil, one other question. I understand, too, that there are some uh, former uh, some Olympians that maybe cycling wasn't their thing, but they're also going to be taking part. Yeah, our partner at RBC, uh, our wonderful friends at RBC, um, have gifted us for the, the weekend uh, three of their Olympians in their program, RBC Olympians. And uh, two are snowboarders and one's a field hockey player. Uh, representing Canada, of course, and uh, we have uh, done some training with them, and they're going to take part in their very first Grand Fondo. All right. Uh, Exciting day, and to see the big events coming back and taking place once again. Neil, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us and bringing us up to date on this. A real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much.
Adam Vickers joins me now, project manager at MRG Group. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so this is really fun, and I got a chance to check it out yesterday. This is Vancouver's very first mini golf bar. Uh, tell us a little bit, how did this all come to be? Um, we came up with the concept in Toronto uh, in 2019. And, uh, you know, the idea, we were looking around at the at the market, and, and Toronto has a, sort of a wide range of activity bars, and um, we were looking at the market and realized there was no mini golf. And so we started, you know, planning and designing and growing and it sort of took off from there. And when you say activity bar, and that's really what uh, makes it a lot different in that you could go and just sit and have a drink and, and chat with friends. But you can also go and the point is you can go through these great uh, mini golf stations and play mini golf while you're doing all of that. Are you seeing more of an appetite or more of a, a clientele that's looking for something like that? Yeah, I think that nightlife is is shifting um, as of late. And I, I think especially, you know, coming out of COVID, I think that people um, were used to getting outside and doing things and, and being engaged in activities. And I think that people are looking for that a little bit more. Um, you know, the, you see nightclubs closing down and more of these bars where they offer something more popping up more and more. And uh, we're just really excited to bring the concept to Vancouver. I noticed that a lot of the mini golf stations and the holes, there's a lot of nostalgia that's incorporated into it. There's one with E.T. on the bike in, um, and there are other real throwbacks to uh, another time. How important was the nostalgia or was that as far as making that part of the experience? Um, I think that it was. I think it was a combination. I think somebody, any, somebody of, of any age can come in and enjoy it. Um, I think that, you know, people my age, I'm in my late thirties. I think that people my age are looking to go out and do something fun and still have drinks with friends, um, but not necessarily just to sit around. So, you know, we try to do a, a, a decent cross section of stuff, including some of the Vancouver based holes that represent landmarks here in the city. Right. There's a, if I'm recalling, there was a bridge, a very well-known bridge in Vancouver and some other uh, science world yeah. and some other landmarks that are incorporated in it as well. Yeah, we did the Lionsgate Bridge, which, um, and, uh, and, and science world and sort of the end of False Creek there. Um, those are probably my two favorite holes on this project, <laughs> you know, living in Vancouver for 20 years and, and seeing those things all the time and everybody's engaged with them. Um, it's fun. It's, 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's cool for the people of Vancouver to see their city represented. Uh, you mentioned kind of the challenges as far as coming out of COVID. And we certainly have been talking about businesses that have either closed or especially in the service industry, uh, real challenges, finding staff and employees. Uh, how was that as far as it's nice to talk about a business opening during this time rather than closing? How much of a challenge was that? Um, you know, we had, we've had Dublin Calling running in that location for a while. So we had some of our staff that's already established and, and we, we hired, um, you know, provided some new jobs to people in the community, um, bringing this on as there's some more elements that are involved, including the pro shop downstairs. So, um, it's, I think it's been really positive. It's been really nice for us as a company to, um, 
yeah, to expand when other companies are, are not. And um, I think that it's exciting and it's exciting to, to look forward to the future and something new and um, and you mentioned the the area. So this is, uh, if people are familiar with the area, like you said, it's it's above kind of where Dublin Calling is, so near Smythe and, and Granville. Uh, you've had other ventures along that Granville Strip. What about the area itself? Because there has been a real push to revitalize it, to make it more family-friendly and uh, to, to make it so people are, are feeling welcomed, not feeling unsafe. Uh, what about the area itself? And, and what are your thoughts on kind of the, the revitalization of that area? Oh, I think it's, you know, I think Granville is such an iconic street for Vancouver, and I think it should be a fun, um, you know, cool place for tourists to visit and Vancouver to appreciate. And I think you're seeing a shift with, you know, new stores opening and things like the rec room and colony going in on Granville Street. Um, and, you know, we're, we're hoping that we can just can contribute to that. Right, because it did become kind of a ghost town, especially during the pandemic. And I know a lot of it na- neighborhoods and areas did, but for whatever reason, I, Granville Street just seemed like it was really, really hard hit. And it is nice to kind of see life return to the street and people come back. Yeah, I think it's great. I think that it's. I think that that kind of gives us an opportunity to um, put a new face on it. You know, we've had the Vogue Theater on Granville Street for 14 years now. Um, and so we've watched the ups and downs and, and before the pandemic, it was, you know, Granville street was a big party street and I think that's shifting a little bit. Um, but it is, you know, it's the, the famed theater row. It's got all the neon signs and, um, I, I, it, it would be great if people could come down there and feel safe and have fun things to do. Uh, and and tell uh, talk a little bit more then about the the space itself because uh, I, I feel like I haven't quite done it justice as far as explaining uh, what people can experience if they go to uh, this this new place. So so who's the target audience and and sell it to somebody as far as what would what do you expect or what will you see and experience when you walk in the door? Uh, target audience is everybody. I mean, we want we want everyone to come and have a good time. Um, I think first and foremost, it's just supposed to be it's just fun. Um, you know, you walk in the door. We've got some. We've got all the themed holes. There's 18 of them. Um, we've got some really cool course lighting. There's great cocktails. There's good food. Um, then, if you walk over to the other side, which we call the clubhouse, uh, you can sit down and have a meal. You can have some great cocktails and drinks. There's DJs, trivia. Um, yeah, it's just sort of a it's a it's a place to go and spend an evening. All right. And when will it officially is it officially open or when will the doors officially open? Uh, booking start on Monday. So we opened up bookings about a week ago and, and we start officially uh, bringing people in on Monday. All right. Well, it is a very, very fun environment. And like you said, nice to see people coming back to that part of the Granville Strip. But Adam, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you very much, Joe.